Welcome to Noggin, the Simple Psychology Podcast, where we discuss scientific research in simple and exciting ways that is applicable to everyone. I'm Ben Rasmussen. And I'm McKay Heaton. And we are your hosts. Have you ever seen something mind-blowing with a friend and then talked about it later and found out you have two different versions of what happened? Have you ever felt confident about the details of a story, the color of someone's shirt, for example, or the type of car that just drove by, until someone suggests that you're actually wrong? Common experiences like this beg the questions, how accurate is our memory, and how susceptible is it to suggestion? Researchers Loftus and Palmer were also curious. They specifically questioned the validity of eyewitness testimony in the courtroom. Here's what they did. 45 students were asked to participate in a laboratory study in which they would be entered in one of five conditions. Each participant was to watch a film of a traffic accident provided to them, ranging in duration from 5 to 30 seconds. After watching the film, the participants were to describe what they witnessed. They were each asked a series of specific questions with careful wording. The main focus question was, about how fast were the cars going when they blanked each other? The blank represents where one of the five conditions would be placed. Each participant was asked that question, but the missing verb could be any one of the following. Smashed, collided, bumped, hit, or contacted. This was done to see if the change in the verb has an effect on the speed that the participants answered. Findings showed that the participants that were asked the question with the verb smashed reported that the cars were going faster than the participants who were asked with the verb hit. In a separate experiment, the researchers showed a video of a car accident and then were asked how fast the cars were going when they hit or smashed into each other. A week later, they asked the participants whether or not they saw any broken glass in the video. The participants in the smash group said they saw glass twice as often as the participants in the hit group. There's a large body of research looking at how our memories can change based on the information that is given to us before and after we witness an event. So today we're going to be talking about two methods of introducing memory-altering information to people. All right, so I think to start off, a definition is in order. One thing that we're going to be talking about a lot today is priming. So priming is the activation of a concept in one context that often increases the likelihood that this concept will be used in evaluating information in a subsequent context. For example, just to kind of explain what that means, subjects who are asked in one task to categorize behaviors as reckless, for example, subsequently interpret a behavior like skydiving as reckless, more often than, say, subjects who are asked to categorize behaviors as adventurous. Those subjects might interpret the same behavior as adventurous. So that's kind of what we mean by prime you. Do something or say something or suggest something to someone before the event or before some sort of question, and they're more likely to answer a certain way because of what you said or did to them before you asked the question. Oh, yeah. So the first study we're going to talk about has priming in the title. It's called Priming and Communication, Social Determinants of Information, Use, and Judgments of Life Satisfaction. This was published in the European Journal of Social Psychology, and the authors are Strack, Martin, and Schwartz. So this is back in 1988, so it's a little bit dated, but I think it's a great study that demonstrates priming and how that can affect us. Classic studies never die. <laughs> That's right. They never die. So this is similar to what the researchers did when they were curious what happened in the courtroom and like priming in the courtroom with eyewitness testimonies because they primed the people by asking a different verb. 
right? So the different verb didn't cause the people, but suggested to the people that they should say that the speed of the car was faster or slower based on what they said, right? So this study, researchers took a group of 180 college freshman participants, and they were split into three different groups. So the only difference between these three groups were the order of the questions they were asked. So they were all given a survey, and the difference was which question was placed before another question, and that was it. Hmm. The first group, they were asked to rate their happiness with life in general. And then after that, they were asked to rate how happy they were with their dating life. That was group one. So it's life in general, then dating life. Okay. Group two, they were asked how happy they were with their dating life. And then they were asked how happy they were with life. So it was a reversed order in group two. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So in group three, they did something a little bit different. And they were asked these questions in a more, they called it conversational way. So this is what they said in the study. It said, now we would like to learn about two areas of life that may be important for people's overall well-being. A, happiness with dating, and B, happiness with life in general. And then the two questions were asked about dating, happiness, and then life in general, in that order. So that was the difference between groups one, two, and three. We're going to look at the results. They're super interesting. It doesn't seem like just changing the order that questions are asked would make much of a difference. Exactly. That's what you think. But this is what is amazing about priming, is that group one's response to the two questions were not correlated. So they were just, they were separate. The answers that they gave weren't connected at all. And this was the satisfied with life and then satisfied with dating group, right? Exactly. Okay. And then group two's responses were significantly correlated. So if you asked, hey, are you satisfied with your dating life? And then right after asked, hey, are you satisfied with your life? Mm -hmm. Then they were more likely to be the same answer. Oh, interesting. Yes. So in group one, it was just like they were separate. The participants didn't like answer them the same way. But in group two, they answered them in the same way. So if you had a bad dating life, you're more likely to say, yeah, I'm, I'm not satisfied with my life. And then if you had a good dating life, you're more likely to say, yeah, I am satisfied with my life. Uh huh. Which is probably something that's a little bit more important to college students than other people. But, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if someone just asks you, hey, how satisfied are you with life? It's kind of like when someone walks by you on the street and says, hey, how's it going? You know, you just kind of respond good. But if someone says like, hey, how's your dating life? And how's it going? It's kind of, it brings to the forefront of your mind something that's actually relevant to your life and it gives you something to kind of work off of. So that's, yeah. So it seems like people are basing their second answer with, with, with the dating life question first. It seems like they're basing their life satisfaction just on dating. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. At least a little bit. Right. That makes we, sense. we can't say all the way, but I mean, at least in some way they're correlated, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, if there's a correlation with group two and there's not with group one, I mean, there's got to be something going on at least a little bit with the order you ask those questions in. Exactly. This is why they had group three, because the order group three had it in was they were asked about their dating life first and then their overall life. Mm -hmm. but they asked it in the conversational way, right. if you remember. Yeah. And group three's responses were not significantly correlated. So if you, if you presented it in a way that made it seem as if they weren't as connected, then people separated them in their minds. But if you didn't, mm -hmm. their minds kind of automatically connected those two questions together. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes. So some questions that I thought 
our listeners might have for this is like, so what does this even mean? You know, what does that mean for me? It's just like, mm-hmm. I mean, nobody's going to come up to you and say, how satisfied are you with your dating life? <laughs> you know, and yeah. then how satisfied are you with your life? You know, that's not going to happen. I think something that our listeners can take away from this is that it means that the order and the way in which you ask questions actually does make a difference. And that can be useful in, I mean, lots of situations. For example, you know, if, if you're a parent asking your child something, you know, the way or the order in which you ask it, it might lead them to think different things or answer in a different way. Or if you're talking to your significant other about maybe a sensitive subject, the way in which you say it or the order in which you ask things might change what they say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good point to bring up. I think another thing too, kind of being on the receiving end of this is whether it's an organization, a charitable organization that's wanting you to donate, or maybe some sort of political organization, they're aware that priming and the order in which they ask their questions is going to maybe change your responses. So that's something to be aware of when you're answering a survey. For example, there's an organization that is for or against guns. They might, in question number one, have this long paragraph about why guns are either great or why guns are horrible. And then that's going to prime you to then say, like, do you or do you not support guns in question number two? And if they have this horror story about how horrible guns are, or if they have this really patriotic paragraph about the Second Amendment, you're going to be much more likely, probably, to answer a certain way, or you're, you're going to at least be primed to answer a certain way. So it's important to be aware of that people who ask you questions understand priming, and they might be trying to draw a certain answer out from you with certain information they give to you or a certain question they ask to you before they ask you their real question. Yes. So what we can draw from that is really saying, hey, when somebody asks you a question, stop and say, hey, what do I think about it before answering with your gut response? Take Mm -hmm. a few seconds, and that's going to really help you say what you would want to say and not just what you feel like you should say because those might be too different depending on the context Mm -hmm. yeah so our second research paper is kind of going back to what we talked about at the beginning of this episode with information being introduced after something happens has the potential to change your interpretation of that event so the second paper is called semantic integration of verbal information into visual memory so this is by loftus miller and burns published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, Human Learning and Memory in 1978. So these are the same researchers that did the car crash experiment. And so this next one that we're going to talk about is similar to that. They, over a number of years, put together a large program of research that looked at the falsifiability or the alteration of memory. In this paper that I'm going to talk about, it has a couple of experiments. And so I chose two of them that I thought were the most interesting to talk about. And so in experiment one, they took 195 college students and they showed them a series of 30 slides depicting successive stages of an auto-pedestrian accident. You see a red car that's traveling alongside a street towards an intersection that pulls up to either a stop sign or a yield sign. So half of the participants saw this slideshow with the stop sign and the other half saw it with the yield sign. And after they saw this slideshow, the participants were asked a series of questions about what they had seen. One of the questions was meant to be a misleading question for half of the participants. So it kind of gets confusing when they cut everything in half so many times. But half the participants saw a stop sign. The other half saw a yield sign. The participants were then asked a series of questions about what they had seen. So one of the questions was meant to be a misleading question for half of the participants. If they had seen the stop sign, the question would ask about a yield sign. 
And if they had seen the yield sign, the question would ask about the stop sign. So the question was, did another car pass the red car while it was stopped at the stop sign? Or did another car pass while it was stopped at the yield sign? So once again, half of these participants saw a stop sign, half of them saw a yield sign, and then half of each group was led astray with this question, um, asking them about whether or not they saw another car while they were stopped at either a yield sign or a stop sign, depending on the opposite of what they saw. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty tough. So 25% of them saw a yield sign and were asked about a stop sign. Another 25% of them saw a stop sign and were asked about a yield sign. And then another 25% were asked about a yield and saw a yield. And the other 25% were asked about a stop and saw a stop. Yeah, exactly. That's a really simple way of putting it. There we go. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) It's easy to get lost in the weeds of the complexity of some of these experiments sometimes. They do a really good job at... um, Making it confusing and hard to read for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So after a 20-minute filler activity, participants were then shown some old slides along with some new slides they hadn't seen before. They'd sit them down, and on the left or on the right, they'd randomize that. There would be a slide that they'd seen before from the actual slide deck, and the other slide would be new, something they hadn't seen before. And participants were then asked to select the slide that they had seen before. So the pair of slides they were really interested in was the stop sign slide next to the yield sign. And so participants that were asked the question that was consistent with what they had seen, so asking about a stop sign if they had seen a stop sign, or a yield sign if they had seen a yield sign, later identified the correct slide 75% of the time. But for the participants that had seen a yield sign and were asked about a stop sign or a stop sign and been asked about a yield sign, only 41% of the time were able to correctly identify the slide that they had actually seen. So the misleading information really threw them off. Wow, that's a big, I mean, that's 30%. 30% of people were thrown off based on just asking about a stop sign or asking about a yield sign. Right. And the researchers also mentioned that that 75% of the time was significantly better than chance, which is 50%. And that 41% was significantly worse than chance. So these participants would have done better just guessing than what they actually thought was true. Wow. So just what you hear or read after an event can change your memory of that event. Is what I'm hearing. Right, yeah. So you could see a man with a red shirt, for example, and someone later might ask you, hey, what color hair did the man with the yellow shirt have? And this might not work every time, but sometimes your brain might change that memory to all of a sudden see that man wearing a yellow shirt and you might not even question it. Mm, interesting, interesting. That's kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> a little a little weird. When I hear that, I, I wonder how much of my memory is accurate. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to the questions I asked at the beginning where you might see something crazy happen with a friend and later you go to talk about it and you say, oh, wasn't it crazy when this happened? And your friend's like, wait, what? No, that's not what happened. This is what happened. And in this situation, you might not have even had a chance to introduce some new information from some external source. It was just you thinking about it more that changed the information. And by the time you and your friend have a chance to talk about it, you both have different stories. That's crazy. Let's hear about experiment two and see how these researchers changed it just a little bit to find some more information about memory. Yeah. So in experiment two, they took 95 participants and they once again showed them the same slide deck with half of them seeing a stop sign and half seeing a yield sign. They were asked the same questions from experiment one, but instead of splitting it in half, this time they had 30 participants with a control question that just mentioned the car stopping at an intersection with no reference to a stop sign or yield sign. Ooh, that's 
Smart. We got thinkers. That's a, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, like when that. in doubt, throw in a control group. That always, <laughs> that always helps things. So participants were then asked to mark what they had seen and what their questionnaire had mentioned. So basically, in this experiment, they gave them a chance to say, hey, yeah, I know that what I saw was different than what you asked me about. You didn't pull the wool over my eyes. Ooh. So, for example, they were able to say that they saw a stop sign, but the questionnaire asked them about a yield sign or just asked them about an intersection. Those who had received a consistent question with what they saw answered correctly 52% of the time, while those who had received misleading information answered correctly only 31% of the time, while the control group answered correctly 41% of the time. I don't know what really happened to it. Even the people with the consistent question only answered a little bit better than chance. But the people who were given misleading information, once again, did much worse than the people with the consistent information. Interesting. Because that's like, I mean, they barely did better than guessing. It was like barely over. But, I mean, at least it kept them better than guessing. I mean, the other groups are just nothing. It's like, that's a lot worse. Yeah. So to answer the question that I always have when I read this article is, what does this mean for me? And it means that our memory is susceptible to change. So not only can we interpret things differently because of something that happens to us or is said to us before we perceive an event, but after we've perceived that event and we log it away in our memory, it can still be changed based on something that happens to us after the fact. Interesting. I wonder if frequently reviewing memories in your mind helps solidify your memory or not, you know, because they were just better than chance. So I I wonder if frequently thought about things stay worse or better or the same or I don't know. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, so actually, I remember this from one of my psychology classes. The more you recall and remember a memory, the more susceptible it is to change. So if you want to, <laughs> so if you want to save your memories, don't think about it. <laughs> no, but uh, but funny. it's it's true. The more you think about your memories, the more you are likely to change them. And it's true that the more that time goes on, the worse you recall specific details about an event. Yeah, that's tough to hear. I think because there's lots of connection over memory and mm-hmm. lots of like nostalgia that people like. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's good to know, though, because that helps us be a bit less reliant on our memory. Yeah, I, exactly. I, I think. And that's what these researchers were trying to get at. The main research question they had is how valid is eyewitness testimony in the courtroom, actually? And thanks to these researchers and other researchers who looked into this, we now understand that it's not super reliable always because in the courtroom, you can prime witnesses to potentially change the way that they actually think the event happened. So the justice system has become more aware of this and more wary of this. So the things like police lineups and things like that happen differently than they used to because we understand better now that people's memories aren't 100%. And that's good. That's that's really good that we now know that. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's going to help courtrooms and it's going to help you in your personal life as well. And we'll, we'll get to the benefits of this. But before we do, I love for Ben to talk a little bit about flashbulb memories, because you know a lot about those. And I've heard a little uh-huh. bit in my psychology classes about flashbulb memories, but I'm not super familiar with them. Yeah, so I thought this would be interesting to talk about just because it's not all bad news with our memories. You know, if we have a really good event happen in our life and we think back on that and we're nostalgic with our friends, it's not like we're just going to completely destroy our memories. Flashbulb memories are a really good example of that. So a flashbulb memory happens when something really big, whether that's really traumatic or otherwise very memorable, happens in our life. 
So a really common example is 9-11. People that were around and old enough to remember 9-11 often consider that as a flashbulb memory. You hear things often like, I'll never forget where I was. I'll never forget what was happening. I'll never forget how I felt. I'll never forget this, this, and this. And so 9-11 actually has been extensively researched. And these people who have these flashbulb memories about 9-11 have been interviewed. But unfortunately, flashbulb memories don't hold up better than other memories do in some ways. So although we think these flashbulb memories are special, they are just as susceptible to alteration as other memories are over time. So people in these experiments are often able to accurately recall the sequence of events better than other memories, but the specific details of events became inconsistent over time. That's good to hear because, you know, the idea behind the memory stays the same, which is what, what typically makes us feel good when we're nostalgic or connecting right. with someone over yeah. an event, but not necessarily the color of your shirt or right. if... Or if the plane hit on the middle of the building or like the upper third of the building, you know, mm-hmm. those, those details aren't as important to the meaning of the memory. It right. seems as if in flashbulb memory research that the meaning of the memory stays the same. Yeah, that's exactly right. So although our memory is not perfect, it's not game over. We can still remember things. We can still look back on them. We can still have good feelings and we can feel nostalgia with our friends and family and things like that. We're just not going to remember every single detail. Yeah, we're not goldfish. we'll remember so at least for me one thing that i took away from this is that how we feel right in this moment influences our choices and what we respond with what we do so one thing i thought of was if i was feeling bummed because of a rejection letter to college or or a rejection from a girlfriend or a rejection from a wanted job i would wait to do something that requires a lot of effort and maybe positivity And then get some sleep, get some professional help, do something you love, do whatever you need to do to feel happier and rejuvenated, and then tackle the thing that requires more hard work, focus, positivity. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. So if we're primed to feel negative because of something that happened to us or something that was said to us, it's probably not the best idea to go about those activities that require positivity or effort. It's definitely a good idea to engage in a pick-me-up, you know, doing something you love to try and get your mind off of it. But it can be a good idea to kind of step away from some of those more challenging, taxing mentally and emotionally tasks until you're able to kind of clear your head a little bit. Yeah. What about you? What's something you took away, Ben? Yeah. So my main takeaways were, although we think our memory is pretty good, the reality is that for most of us, our memory is subject to change. So instead of asserting that our version of the story is correct, we would do well to humbly accept that what we remember may not be right. And it's okay to be open to other ideas and correction from others. So the reality is that A lot of our ideas about the world are formed by the time we're teenagers. But if you have ever met a teenager or if you remember being a teenager, there is still a lot to be learned. (laughs) (laughs) That's the truth. (laughs) But just based off of how our mind works, we kind of tend to solidify a lot of these ideas about the world in our teens. But if we are willing to remind ourselves that our previous experiences and the, the previous experiences that we have taken from others and used to form our worldview, if we recognize that those can prime our experience today and that those primers might not be leading us in the best direction, it might not be leading us to the correct information or to the most beneficial opinion that aligns with your values, 
if we're willing to be humble and accept that and open our minds, we can learn a lot and we can find information and beliefs that align with our values. And we can also avoid some arguments with friends who think something happened a certain way and you just will not believe them. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. I just thought of another thing that I would like to apply in my life. And that's I've noticed when I have a tough day at work and I come home, or just something negative happens right before I come home, it's much easier for me to be critical of my wife. Oh, yeah, totally. Or anything that's going on at home. Mm -hmm. And so I want to, because that's kind of like that priming, like I'm primed for negativity. And so I continue that negativity just because that's the way my mind's going. Because it's like, oh, bad thing happened at work. Oh, bad things are happening at home. Mm -hmm. It's like not yeah. necessarily the case. Right. Something that happens at home that might not normally bother you, something that is seemingly small, if you've had a bad day, it can really set you off. And it can be really healing for a relationship to just recognize, hey, I apologize for doing that. It's definitely not you. It's me. I had a bad day at work. And I understand and recognize that this really tiny thing that usually wouldn't bother me is really upsetting me right now because I had a bad day at work. Can we talk about that? Exactly. Yeah. So that priming that can happen in our life at work, at least for me, sometimes I take it home. And so I want to be more aware of that and say, no, that was something that's happening at work. And that is separate from the things that are happening at home. And I'm going to take what is happening at home that's maybe bothering me or I don't like or whatever, and take it at face value mm -hmm. and say, hey, like, this is what it is. Is it really a big deal? And then I can decide maybe it is a big deal. Maybe it's not. Yeah, uh, probably the majority of times, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, th I think it's really important to think about your thinking instead of just kind of rolling with the punches and living your life in first person mode. It can be really important and beneficial for your relationships and for yourself, for your overall well-being to start thinking about your thinking. Why do I think these things? What led me to this opinion? Why am I feeling these things? Was it something that happened at work or is it actually the fact that the door wasn't closed all the way or whatever it is that set you off at home? Another takeaway I have as well is journals. So although our memories will change over time, what we write down will not change unless something... Well, unless you've got erasable ink. <laughs> yeah. So if you write it in pen that is not erasable, then <laughs> your memories that you have written down will not change. So this is something that I would like to be better at doing. I'm not super great at writing things down, but luckily I have written down some of these flashbulb big events in my life. And that can be really meaningful because as we forget the specific details of these big events that happen in our lives, if we write them down soon after they happen, our brain hasn't had time to alter those memories as much yet. So we can look back on those things and we can get a better picture of what actually happened on that meaningful day. Yeah. So today I've learned a ton about priming, about memory, and I hope you have as well. And so we hope you take these suggestions and the things that we've learned and maybe try them and see if they work for you. been listening to noggin the simple psychology podcast thank you for listening to our show we really appreciate it we have shared with you only a few articles of the thousands that have been published on this subject though we wish we could go more in depth we hope you've enjoyed our introduction and interpretation of this topic we don't claim to know everything but we have shared with you our takeaways from reading this research i'm mckay and i'm ben and we hope you have a great rest of your day